chapter 1. We're going to get into the text today. Yay! However, before we get there, a couple things. Um, I told you I was going to think about what we're going to do with living water. And I thought about it, and I thought... This perhaps will make it the most practical and useful for you guys. Um, Because it's one thing to read a book, and it's done. And someone asks you about it, you're like, well, it's in here, but it's not out here. Um, Writing really helps get it out, but um, it's kind of, I know you guys are going to have a lot of stuff to do and a lot of ministry going on. I don't want you guys to be a tube, just bombarded. You have to read this whole book, Living Water, by the end of this month. It's like 20 five or six chapters, so that's like two chapters a day, excluding weekends, so um, you guys are going to be busy enough with that, so rather than writing about it, I thought what we'll do, because this is practical, is um, you guys are going to, every day you come to class, starting tomorrow, you're going to have two chapters due, so chapters one and two due tomorrow, and I'm going to randomly draw two names, and you just basically come up here and share for about two minutes what you got out of it, or what it said, or what it meant to you, and... The reason I think that that's practical is because, you know, if you ever get a chance to talk to somebody, you've already worked out trying to say what you learned. So that's a huge step. Um, It's a really huge step. Uh, For example, like in teaching these classes, um, I could just learn all this stuff in, you know, only a couple hours. But to actually learn it in such a way that you can talk about it takes a lot of extra hours. So it's just, you know, you guys learn just to, and you're not going to know who gets called on. So, don't look dumb and say, I didn't read it. (laughs) So, two chapters a day, and I'll call tomorrow two random um, victims. It doesn't have to be anything, like, spectacular or long. Just just say it. Just get it out. All right. And then, regarding the papers, I think we'll just do two papers. And, again, um, I'm not going to specify length. Just do justice to the topic. And I'm still thinking about what the first one will be. But um, I'm tempted to share what I know one of them is going to be. I just don't know if it's going to be the first one. Well, why not I just say it? If you guys can start thinking about it, I'll give you a due date later. Um, I want you guys to um, write, and of course I'll say this later, but I'm going to give you guys like a narrative passage, which is basically what Acts is, a bunch of narratives. And I want you guys to tell the story in your own words. Creative writing. Um, I know that sounds totally unrelated to a biblical class, but believe it or not, it's so beneficial to learn to read the Bible through the lens of creative writing because the Bible's narrative, as most of you know, you compare a novel you read versus a narrative in the Bible, which is more exciting and detailed? The novel, right? You go through all the emotions and the swings. and Well, biblical narrative is very dry. It only gives you basic details. Therefore, we need to learn when we read biblical narrative that whatever details are given are very important to the author, if he includes any details at all. So we need to learn to hone in on those details, think them through, and really flesh in what's in between the lines. The narratives allow us to use our imagination to picture what are the emotions, what perhaps prompted this person to do this or to say that. And I'll give you guys a little bit of license to use that creativity, and you'll see how it can really just make like Old Testament stories come to life and you start to really put yourself there and think through not just like that's a random statement no like what made that happen so um, I was made I was forced to do that and not write it out but um, learn to teach in more of a storytelling 
um, for narrative passages in the Old Testament when I was in school ministry, and it totally revolutionized the way I looked at certain passages. It was so much fun. So I thought that would be very practical. Then the next one might just be more of your typical, like, with the Holy Spirit type of thing. <laughs> All right, so let's dive in because I now only have 40 minutes. <laughs> um, last Yesterday I had to end slightly short of our introduction, so I'm going to finish that, and then we'll dive right into verse 1 of Acts 1. So go to Luke chapter 14. And Father, as we turn there, we pray that you turn over all the leaves in our heart and look into the deepest recesses and shine your light in there, Lord. Um, give us understanding as well and bring the application to us and help us to see everything that you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so yesterday we talked about ex- the exclusion of Judaism and God's just surprising everyone by showing the whole time I planned inclusion, everybody. You might remember the acronym for ACTS. Um, Salvation through Christ for all. S-T-C-A. Acts backwards. So that's pretty much the theme we're looking at. And we talked about how Christianity started as a sect in Judaism, but eventually Judaism broke off of them, which is the backward way of thinking, and diverted, and Christianity became the way, the perfected form of Judaism. How did these two separate from each other? How did they become distinct? One of the ways that Christianity did this was by including, as I've been saying, the ones that Judaism excluded, the specific people that Judaism targeted, namely the poor, the sinner, and the Gentile, or the least, the last, and the lost. Those were targeted by Christians. So let's look at the poor in Luke 14, verse 15. Now, when one of those who sat at table with Jesus heard these things, he said to Jesus, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. And he said, Yay, this is going to be great. But Jesus says to him, a parable, A certain man gave a supper and invited many. He sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. But first said to him, well, I've bought a piece of ground. I've got some property. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused, please. Well, another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I've got a new car. I want to go for a test drive. <laughs> I ask you to have me excused. Still another, verse 20, said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So you see the distraction with possessions. But now... In verse 21, Jesus says that the master said to the servant, um, so that servant came, excuse me, and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry that he was rejected, said to the servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, and the lame, and the blind. All those excluded And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and there's still room. And so the master said to the servant, Go into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you, that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. Now, 
when we get to the book of Acts, in chapter 3, guess what we see right away? Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame, from his mother's womb was carried and sat daily at the gate. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, asked them for alms. And Peter looks at him, says, silver and gold, I have none, but you in the name of Jesus get up and walk. So we see Jesus teaching his disciples, don't follow the way of the Pharisees, the leaders of you know, our Judaism, and exclude the lame. They're not lame because they're sinners. They were born that way, just because of God's sovereignty. So go and include them. And the disciples catch on. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And we see Peter right away. sees a lame person. He includes him, not shunning him. Not thinking, well, what did you do to deserve that? Brought him right in. So we see that happening right away. And in Acts 14, verse 8, um, Pete, Paul does the same thing in healing a crippled man. Now in Luke 15, verse 1. Addressing sinners, those whom were excluded. Jesus gives three parables, basically to show. The Pharisees were grumbling. That, well, why don't you look at verse 1. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. So no, it's tax collectors, sinners, the worst people in the societal caste system. And the Pharisees and scribes complaining said, Jesus, this man, receives sinners and eats with them. So, Jesus tells them three parables. Basically saying, you guys hate sinners, God loves sinners. And it's a parable about seeking the one lamb that was lost, leaving the 99 to find the one. The woman who searches for that one coin that was lost. And for the prodigal son. Jesus showing in every one of those stories how much and how far he goes out of his way to include sinners into his salvation program. So, how do the apostles do this? Well, in chapter 9 of Acts, you don't have to turn there, um, it's when the apostle, he's not the apostle then, he's um, the, the murderer Saul, the enemy of the church, becomes converted. The test is on. Does the church receive sinners like Saul to become Paul? Or do they exclude him? At first, they're very hesitant. And it takes a guy named Barnabas to muster up the courage to include Paul. So the church is put to the test there. And then the third category that was excluded is Gentiles. And that's Luke 10, verse 30. And that's the, um, that's the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, a Samaritan viewed as a Gentile to the Jews although he's part Jew, but they were treated the same as Gentiles. Um, you guys know the story about the, the guy that gets mugged by robbers and he's laying there, and who passes by? A priest, a Levite, good Jewish boys who are supposed to take care of him, but they don't. They pass right on. And then a Gentile, the Samaritan comes along of all people, and you can just see the listeners those listening to Jesus just grinding their teeth saying, I don't like this story. It's the Samaritan that shows kindness to his neighbor and deals with him kindly. And the point of the story that Jesus wants to get across is, look, if a Gentile can be nice to you, you are so obligated to be nice back to them. It was, he was answering the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is saying, yes, even that good Samaritan is your neighbor. You're to receive 
all Gentiles. So this occurs in Acts 8 when, excuse me, um, Philip goes down to Samaria of all places, shares the gospel, and they get saved. And, of course, in a plethora of other places in Acts, but that's the one I'll point out for now. So, now we can start Acts chapter 1. The inclusion of the least, the last, and the lost. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day he was taken up after after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen to whom he said his apostles he said um, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God this is called the prologue or the preface. It's a little introductory statement. And Luke made this same type of writing, preface, prologue, in Luke chapter 1, and which really serves as the introduction for both works. And there he explains to Theophilus that he's, he's writing both of these books in order to set forth a narrative of the things which have been fulfilled among us. So, it seemed good to me, Theophilus, having had a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account. So he wants Theophilus to know of certainty what happened with Jesus and the beginning of the church. That's what he said in Luke. Now in Acts, he says, the former things, referring back to Luke, the gospel, says, I had already written to you about what Jesus began to do and teach. So in Luke, we see the beginning of what Jesus does, Thus implying in Acts, we see the continuation of what Jesus still does. Jesus is still working in the church. As we looked at yesterday, perhaps a thorough title of the book of Acts is the Acts of Jesus performed by his Holy Spirit and manifested through his apostles. Jesus is the one acting through the church. He's given us his spirit who's moving through us. So Jesus is still very much at work. He's just not seen. We have become his spiritual body. So Acts continues his present day work. Now, Luke closed with the ascension of Jesus. Acts opens a little bit before that. So he's going back a couple of days and reviewing what had happened, filling in more detail which sets up the whole story of Acts. So we're looking at right before Jesus ascends. He resurrected. He's been with the disciples for 40 days. And what are they doing? Verse 3 says that he's speaking the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4, being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. So, during these 40 days... They're assembling together, which literally reads, they took salt together, which was an idiom, a phrase in their day for table fellowship, eating together, having that type of get-together. So for 40 days, 
Jesus is hanging out with the apostles. He's eating with them. They're having conversations about two things. The kingdom of God in verse 3 and the coming of the Holy Spirit in verse 4. These are the two main themes of Jesus' discussion to them. Now, these two topics together are extremely interesting because um, they link Old Testament prophecies together in the minds of the apostles who know, of course, the Old Testament scriptures. And the connection between the Holy Spirit and the kingdom aroused great interest in the apostles. What kind of interest is this? I'm so out of order. I don't know what happened. There it is. The two together sparked this interest because... Let me give you a quick Old Testament review. There's two covenants. Um, the Abrahamic covenant, which promised... Because, you know, we talked about that yesterday twice. Um, the promise of land, of descendants and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed to them. So Israel is expecting land. And then the Davidic covenant, which God told David, your son will forever reign over Israel. Well, he had a son named Solomon. Solomon died. It wasn't Solomon. And you go down the list. All the kings of Judah died. It was none of them. Jesus is the fulfillment of that because as Matthew shows, he's the son of David. So he's the one to sit on the throne of Israel forever. So Israel is expecting a restored kingdom to come back to their land because the promises of them having a land and a king to reign forever, they're totally expecting this. At the present time, Rome owns their whole territory. They don't own their land, they're just living there. And they want their kingdom back. And so they're expecting this restoration of the kingdom because Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit and the kingdom. Now, let me show you why they're expecting these things when you put these together. Listen to Ezekiel 11 verse 19. God says, I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit, Holy Spirit, within them and take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Then Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Then... Notice, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Did you hear that connection between land and spirit? Ezekiel 37 verse 14. I will put my spirit in you. You shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 39, verse 27. <laughs> when I have brought the people back, gathered them out of their enemies' lands, and brought them back 
Then I will hallow them in the sight of many nations, so they will be exalted. He's talking about bringing them back from captivity into Israel. And then he ends in verse 29 by saying, I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel. So you're getting the point, right? There's a connection between a restoration of their land, their kingdom, and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Of course, Joel chapter 2 is a huge um, one on this, but we'll see this in chapter, Acts chapter 2 when we get there. Isaiah 32 verse 15. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is counted as a forest. So there it's talking about the land being restored. Where there's no fruit, there's going to be fruit. Where there's no forest, there's going to be forest. There's going to be lush and abundantful. And God said, when I pour out my Spirit. So, putting all this together, you can see how the Israelites, especially the disciples who know their Bible somewhat, as all good Jews did, um, are totally in expectation of a restored kingdom. The prophets are littered with references to Israel becoming a global kingdom, totally restored, just as God had promised them, with some son of David reigning over them forever. And when you see some of those passages promising that in connection with the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is telling them in verse 4, wait in Jerusalem until I give you the Holy Spirit, what's going through their mind? Wait, the Holy Spirit's coming? According to Ezekiel, Joel, and Isaiah, that means the restoration of the kingdom is supposed to come too. Yes! So it leads them to the natural question there in verse 6. Because Jesus then in verse 5 said, Truly, John baptizes you, but I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So that's why they're thinking. In verse 6, they ask, <laughs> Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So, you see, it's not quite as random of a question as it seems at first. If God's saying the Spirit's coming, they're thinking that means the kingdom's coming too. It's a natural question to say, alright, Spirit's coming, so you're going to restore the kingdom right now too, right? How does Jesus answer? Verse 7. It's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. He didn't rebuke them for thinking that. He didn't say, foolish ones, there's no kingdom coming. It's fulfilled right before your eyes. He said, you know what? You're just not supposed to know the timing of it. But, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So in other words, you guys are expecting the kingdom, because I'm promising the Holy Spirit. Good. Your, your theology is correct. However, there's a delay. Jesus did affirm that there's a time. He said, my Father knows the time. But until that time comes, the Spirit is going to give you power to operate as my witnesses to the ends of the earth until the fulfillment of that kingdom. So we see this initial, um, this initiation of the kingdom promises ushered in because the Spirit's coming. And the spiritual kingdom's established. Jesus is ruling over us today. He's the head of the church. But the fulfillment of a physical kingdom coming is yet to come. So we live in this weird middle ground 
where there's this partial fulfillment initiated, but the fulfillment, the completion, is yet to come. It's a lot, like we said earlier this morning, um, to, to help make sense of it, it's, it's a lot like your senior year of high school, particularly your last semester when you get senioritis. You have, in a sense, already entitled yourself as a graduate. You're thinking as a graduate. You're feeling graduation. You're all ready for college. You've got your applications in. You've got your acceptance. You know where you're going. Or if it's youth call, I mean, you've got your thing, and you're so waiting for school to end. You're thinking about summer plans. You're pretty much not even doing your homework anymore, as my senioritis went. Um, you're just pretty much in summer mode. You're just actually still in school. So there's a partial sense in which summer has entered into you. Your liberty from high school is already operating in your mind and through your motives, but you're waiting for the very, very final day when that literally and physically comes true. And you're holding your diploma, if you earned one, and you're rejoicing. That's where we're at. We're at the senioritis stage, or the spirititis stage. The Holy Spirit is given. The end days have come. But it's not the end of the end days. We have initiated into a new age, the messianic age, the Jesus kingdom age. And we are now in that senioritis stage, just antsy and, okay, the kingdom's going to come really soon and it will finally be fulfilled. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, I think I'll get into that a little bit later in Acts to truly specify that some more. But there's a major question out there. Are we to really expect a literal kingdom to come? Or are we experiencing the kingdom that Jesus promised today? There's two camps on this. The first camp is more of the Reformed view. Um, (coughs) They pretty much believe that the Old Testament promises of the restored kingdom in the land that God promised through Abraham has been fulfilled in Jesus. He, yeah, go ahead. Is this a literal kingdom that we're to expect, or has it been spiritually fulfilled already? And the Reformed view takes that spiritual interpretation that Jesus has fulfilled all the promises of the kingdom. So when you read in the Old Testament about um, an abundance and um, all nations coming to Jerusalem and there being a kingdom, um, basically that's Jesus. We're experiencing the abundance in him. All nations are coming to Jesus. And um, eventually, when the new heaven and earth come, there will be the city there. So, the kingdom is a spiritual nature in which we are presently partaking. Um, Although advancers of this view do not deny a future revival of Israel, meaning they do believe Jews will have a revival and many Jews will be saved, they do point out that nowhere in the New Testament is this revival of Jews connected with a restoration of land. And they're right. There is no connection in the New Testament between um, the revival of Jews and the literal physical kingdom being in their land. However, I'll get into that in the next view. <laughs> According to this view, the New Testament contains no clear promise regarding land. To clarify, this view does not deny a physical return of Jesus. So although the kingdom is fulfilled in Jesus, he is actually going to return, and that's when the Jews will be revived. But they say he's not going to establish a physical kingdom. Reformed view. Now the second view, 
that takes the literal kingdom to come is the dispensational view. Big fancy word. <laughs> dispensational view. And this is the view that Calvary Chapel holds. And we're not unique in the view, so it's not like we're just some weird sect that believes this and everyone else doesn't. It's actually a very popular view, but Calvary Chapel definitely holds the dispensational view. And this takes the promise of land to Abraham in Genesis 12 literally. And because it takes it literally, they say, looking at Israel's, Israel's history, God promised to Abraham land from the Euphrates River all the way down to the Egyptian River. All of that land. And Israel has never at one time possessed all of that. They say in Solomon's height, the height of his kingdom, which was the biggest Israel ever got, they held 10% of that land. So if we take the promises to Abraham literally, what do we have to expect? That at some point they're going to own all of that land. And so we say that it's when Jesus returns, he establishes that kingdom for Israel. We also take the promise of the Davidic covenant literally. You see, the reform view that takes a spiritual fulfillment says that Jesus, the son of David, is reigning on David's throne right now in heaven. So that Davidic covenant is fulfilled. He's reigning presently as David's son forever. But, did David sit in a heavenly throne or in a physical throne in Jerusalem? Physical throne in Jerusalem. And because dispensational views take the promise literally, they say, Jesus is not on the throne of David yet. That will happen when he returns and literally goes to Jerusalem and establishes his throne there and reigns from there. So... There you have it. It might You may not care. It might have been beyond a little bit of some of you, but it's an important issue. What is this kingdom? We hold that it's physically going to come. So, I've already showed you my argument for this literal kingdom in that in verse 7, Jesus does not correct the disciples' view saying, duh, I fulfilled it. He simply says, look, the Father has the time of that in plan. You don't need to worry about it. Until that time comes, be filled with the Spirit and be my witness to the end of the earth. As Thielman concludes, that's one of the authors I've been telling you guys about, he puts it this way, eventually the kingdom would be restored to Israel, but only in such a way that the nations would also be included in that restoration. So that's why Jesus says, be my witnesses and go to the ends of the earth, to include all nations into this future literal restoration restored kingdom. That's not just going to be Israel, but the church is going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. So it's our kingdom too. Furthermore, look at Acts 3 verse 21. Actually start in verse 19. This is Peter's perspective of the future. Acts 3 19. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who has preached to you before, and here it is, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. So Jesus has to be in heaven until the restoration of all things. In other words, when Jesus comes out of heaven and returns, the restoration of all things. And there we have the fulfillment of the prophets. 
So it seems to me that Peter took it very literally, that there was going to be restoration of the land. So, there you have that. Now, I do want to point out that there in verse 4, Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. Don't do verse 8 until verse 5 happens, when you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So wait in Jerusalem until the Spirit comes upon you, then go. But wait for my time. Don't go ahead of yourself. That's totally what Moses needed to know, isn't it? When he's looking around as the prince of Egypt, knowing full well, Hebrews implies that, I'm going to leave these people out of this place. I want to save these people. And one day he decides it's time. I'm going to do this. So he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave there next to his two. And Moses looks left, he looks right, and he goes in for the kill. And he beats that Egyptian slave and kills him. And then he buries him in the sand. But little did he know that CBS News caught the whole thing on videotape. And that night, Pharaoh was watching the news, and he said, Moses did what? And he drove Moses out of the land. Moses fled in fear of being killed. And there Moses is for 40 years in the wilderness, and he's just this nobody now, from somebody to nobody. And he's probably feeling like a failure. And in a sense, he did fail in not waiting for God's time. So now God's training Moses in the wilderness. Forty years go by. Moses comes back, empowered by the Spirit of God, to lead the people out of Egypt. It worked in God's time. So for you and I, we've been in the habit of waiting for God's time. Not just, this is what we need to do, just go do it. God would say, wait, wait for my filling of the Spirit to send you out so that you can complete the task that I give to you. How are we supposed to wait? Um, I'm jumping a little bit ahead in verse 14. This is how the, the disciples waited. There's 120 of them gathered in a room. And in verse 14, what were they doing? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. <laughs> That's how they waited. They worshipped. We're not talking about when we say wait on the Lord, this idle waiting, just sitting around and hope something happens. If it happens, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. We're talking about God's worshiping God until we're so close to Him that we know the time. He fills us with His Spirit and then we go out. It's, it's, it's more like the waiting of a girl, a beautiful young lady who's getting ready for her date, waiting for her ride to pick her up. She's not idly waiting. She's nervous. She's anticipating. She's getting as beautiful as she can. She's got 50 dresses on the floor of her bedroom because none of them seem to look just right. Um, well, my sister does that. <laughs> um, just always getting ready, doing stuff, getting totally expecting for the moment. And so is the church, praying and waiting for the coming of the Spirit. So, Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because the Old Testament has so many promises about salvation coming to Jerusalem and then going out into the world. You might recall that yesterday we talked about the shape of Acts and Luke, Luke and Acts, being the shape of an hourglass. 
Um, how Luke starts all the world and funnels down to the very end where it's just focusing on Jerusalem. And then Acts opens just in Jerusalem and funnels out into going out to all the ends of the earth. And the purpose is because salvation was achieved in Jerusalem and it was also received in Jerusalem according to the prophets who said things like this, Isaiah 2.3 For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah 40 verse 9 O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Maybe the gospel? Lift up your voice with strength and let it not be afraid. And this just goes on and talks about God becoming a shepherd for all his people. Total picture of what happens with the church. So, that's perhaps why he wants them in Jerusalem. Because that is the center of salvation to go out, as the prophets have said. Alright, now to the meaty stuff in verse 8. Um, you guys will read this in Living Water. But... It's important to talk about right now. Because Jesus said in verse 5, You shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Jesus seems to refer to this as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, I'm baptizing you with water, but one is coming who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? There is division in the church regarding it. I will give you the non-Calvary view and then the Calvary view. Um, one view says that the baptism occurs once for every Christian at the time of salvation. Because 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew, Greek, slave, free, man, woman, all were made to drink in one spirit. So, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. So, they say, when you get saved, you are baptized with the Spirit. You're, you're immersed, you're inserted into the family of God. Everybody here is baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, we don't deny that at all. That's very true. But that is not the baptism John and Jesus talked about. This one, and this is the second view, is that the baptism occurs distinctly and separately from salvation. So you get saved, and there's a moment when the Holy Spirit is going to baptize you. Now, when you're saved, the Spirit comes in you. But we're waiting for a time when you become so filled and empowered with the Spirit that you are able to serve God mightily. So in Living Water the book you guys will be reading, towards the end of the book, Chuck does it this way. He points out that in the Greek, there are three prepositions to the Holy Spirit when it relates to us. A preposition is a... Well, you guys know, right? Okay, good. I talk to high schoolers and I have to do that. Um, there are three Greek prepositions. The first is para, which means with. And that's where Jesus talks about John fourteen seventeen that you will know the Holy Spirit, for He dwells with you. Para. He's alongside everybody in the world, convicting them of sin, leading them to Jesus. He's with you. Then He says, and He will be in you. And that's the second phase. The Holy Spirit 
in us. That is the Greek preposition en, E-N. He will be in you. When you become saved, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And this happened to the disciples in John 20, verse 22. Jesus said to them, notice this is before Acts, he says, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So it appears they received, and in, the Holy Spirit was in them. And then finally, there's the third relationship, and that's the Spirit upon us. The Greek preposition is epi, E-P-I, and it means to be over or upon. And that's the word we see here in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So this is, the Holy Spirit's already in you, but he comes upon you in such a way that the in you starts coming out of you. It starts overflowing. You're empowered in a special way to do the Lord's work. And this doesn't happen to every believer. Every believer is filled with the Spirit in them, but not every believer is letting the Holy Spirit take control and work through their life and empower them. There's a huge difference between doing things like Moses, by beating up Egyptians and failing, and waiting for God's time and letting Him do plagues through you. Plagues. We're not going to go out into the world and do plagues on people, but, um, you know, doing the mighty works of God. So, the overflowing of power. And this this is what we need. This is what the apostles need to do. This magnificent task of being witnesses to the ends of the earth. Because on our own, this is like saying, alright, there's a ten story building over there. Jump it. Now, okay, so a lot of Christians will say this is what God wants me to do. So they start training. They start jumping. They get pogo sticks. They do whatever they can. Trampoline. They start making the effort. They get suction cups so they land on the face of the building and start climbing their way up and they say, hey, um, use a rope in case they fall and they have all these crazy ways of trying to do God's work but conversely, when you're baptized with the Spirit and you let the Spirit do the work, it's like what C.S. Lewis referred to in Mere Christianity as you're no longer trying to jump over that building but you become a new creature who sprouts wings and then can fly over it. The Spirit is those wings for us who enables us to fly over and to be empowered to do everything that He wants us to do. That's the issue here. We're new creatures. The Holy Spirit is like this massive animal trying to get out of us, if you will. A good thing, though. That's just a graphic illustration for you. So there you have that. Um, got well, well, we'll definitely go faster in this book in the future. Um, I think we'll have to cover the ascension and the choosing of the next apostle, and we'll do all of chapter 2 tomorrow. So we'll end there. Do you guys have any questions while I have a couple minutes left? Sweet. Yeah. They said that Jesus is the son of David, and that I thought Jesus was cursed. David came from the tribe of Benjamin, or... Saul, the first king came from Benjamin. David came from Judah. Oh, okay. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And then I heard the line of the tribe of Judah, and then I was... No, yeah, totally Jesus, so... Good to go with Judah. When we come up, uh, talk about the two chapters that we read, can we have, like, a little paper? Oh, for sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. 
rambling. All right, Stephen, we'll, we'll have to put a curfew on you, I guess. <laughs> um, you, you know what, though, that's actually a really good question. Should you have a piece of paper? I would want to say no, but I know Mike's sitting back there, and he's a guy that can't talk unless he's got his paper in front of him. So <laughs> I guess some people just have to... So, yeah. Um, you know what, though? Honestly, guys, get in the habit, if you have to use notes um, and stuff like that, just get in the habit of um, having, like, bullet points just to remind you what you want to say because um, we, when we listen, want to know you care about us more than you do about your paper and want eye contact and feel like you're talking to us. Um, of course, I'm breaking my rule in this class because I've got this massive load of notes, but this is a totally different class. I'm not giving you guys messages. I'm, like, trying to teach a whole book of Acts in about the same amount of days as there's chapters, and that means teaching, or, yeah, teaching every day rather than every week, so, you know, totally different ballgame here, but, um, yeah. So, you can go ahead and have notes. That means, though, that you're going to have to write notes every day in case that's the day you get called. So... <laughs> Whatever you want. Yes, sir. So I guess using a computer would be kind of like having a piece of paper in front of you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'm not. I'm not trying to bash notes. I just think if you guys are going to start doing things, try to start on the foot that everybody wants to start on. Mike wishes he could teach about notes, but he can't. So I'd rather get start that way than get. Change your notes early on. But one thing that I found helpful when I was at Cinder Lake 